Whether you're missing the key ingredient for grandma's lasagna recipe, need a new roll of paper towels, or in the mood for some late night food, you can have it all delivered straight to your door with new Grubhub goods. From extras to essentials, Grubhub can now deliver all of your go-to convenience items all day long. Plus, it's fast and easy. Order Grubhub goods today on the app or online. Welcome back to Colors of the Dark, sponsored by Fangoria. I am one of your co-hosts, Laura Kane, and joining me, as glistening as ever, if that's a word, Dr. Rebecca McKenzie. <laughs> Why you gotta go there? I was jogging right before this. I'm a little. I'm a little. Um, I, look I think like you're I jogging during this. To be honest, <laughs> from the way it's looking. I, I just look like I've been out jogging. No, I literally was like, I'm just gonna go on like a quick, like two, three mile jog right before this. And um, what I realized was I either did not jog fast enough, or I miscalculated how much I can jog in that time. So I was like, literally, like jogging back seconds before we. Or started, you shrunk. So. You could have shrunk in just that a couple could, inches. I got these itty bitty legs, so. Yeah. You know, it takes it takes a long time to get around. The and a big head. You never know. The head could weigh you down and the feet. You know, who knows? It's, <laughs> I um, know. Well, welcome back. We had a blast last night. Uh, we did one of the co- coolest screenings we could have possibly done. Uh, we saw the new Ty West film X on 35. So fun. Yeah, that was just a perfect movie to see in that theater. The 35 yeah. millimeter and and just, you know, in the skanky theater or what used to be one of the skanky theaters yeah. of Los Angeles. It's now lovely. Um, but, you know, that's where these types of movies that it's referencing would have played. So it just it was very fitting. And uh, we will definitely get into that in a little bit, as well as a conversation with Ty West um, yeah. towards the we- end of the show. We will say we're putting that interview with Ty at the end of the show because it does contain spoilers. Um, we really wanted to kind of dig into a little bit of the meat of the movie just because we we wanted to get into the details of like some of the twists and things like that. So we're going to put it at the tail end of the show today. Um, just so that if you haven't seen it yet, you can check it out and then circle back to the interview. Yeah, because I mean, look, and you will just say up front without reviewing the film per se is like, I thought it was one of the best things I've seen this year period of any kind of movie. It's a throwback to dangerous, messed up you know, nasties uh, yeah. of a period that we just don't really see anymore. And so mm-hmm. for me, I just want people to go see it, support in theaters. It's A24, big release, a lot riding on it, I would say, um, in, in that level and easily his biggest release. So we're very excited for you guys to see it. So go see it. We're going to talk about films on filmmaking in a second, but um, let's talk about another thing we saw in theaters. Yeah, this one. So Elric and I, um, we were really excited because they've lifted mass mandates and theaters are opening back up and our numbers are good here in Los Angeles. So we were like, let's go to the AMC. And for my those, oh, you're you wearing your AMC. So we have three AMCs in Burbank and it's real confusing because they're all within a block radius of each other. So it's just become this permanent joke of like, which AMC? It's the one in the mall. No, it's the one next to the mall. No, it's the one on the other side of the mall. Yeah, it's um, yeah, it's real complicated, but um, we before the pandemic. For those of you guys who listened to Colors of the Dark two years ago, my God, if I can't even tell anymore. Um, like back 
Shockwaves days, um, we had AMC passes and I literally was at the theater at least once a week, if not twice, because yeah. it's close to my house and I can just pop over a lot of times by myself in the afternoon. I'd just be like, I'm going to go see Uncut Gems. And, you know, it was lovely. And so I'm, I got my AMC pass back. I think I'm going to go see um, Death on the Nile this weekend, which I'm late to the party on, but I love my murder mysteries. Yeah. Um, but we were kind of looking over everything that's playing at the AMC and Elric and I were both suddenly like, what's the cursed? Like this one literally slipped into theaters and we had no idea that it was there. It just did not get a lot of press in the horror world. And, and I think part of it, from what I understood, is that it played at Sundance the year before and, and to really great reviews, but it had a different title. Really? So the, so the ti- I don't. I don't. I was talking to a friend of mine, and they said no, it's because it had a different name. I don't know what that other title. I didn't look it up in time. Um, so the cursed is obviously a, the a title put on theatrical. That could explain why it was getting like quite a big release, but no one was really talking about it. But the reviews I did see were all positive, so that was enough for us to go. Okay, going in blind. I mean, totally blind. We had no idea what this was, except yeah. I was like, it looks like it's kind of got like a werewolfy vibe. If you just look at like the poster, because it's got like dog teeth on it i was like and period Maybe. yeah and it seems to be a period piece and that's literally all we knew i will say i'm intrigued what the prior title was because the cursed is a shitty title um it's just it, it's real... it's generic but it is apt it's apt to the story because the, the story does look at a curse that's not just i mean if anything would have kept me away from seeing it it was thinking it was just going to be another werewolf movie because mm-hmm. i've seen so many werewolf movies it wouldn't matter when you said it i, I even if it was well reviewed i'd be like yeah um what's what i look i i I think maybe i think you liked this but you had some issues with things i i think i flat out love this movie the more i think about it the more i love it um because like i liked brotherhood of the wolf when i first saw that one in theaters but that one because what that did that was cool was it took modern filmmaking techniques and put it into a period piece that was one of the fun things it felt like almost like modern action sensibility but done in a period piece uh werewolf movie this one feels like they are dropping I mean, not to bury the lead, but basically dropping the thing right into the middle of a, ooh, there's Fog on the Moors movie. Yeah. And for me, that got really exciting at times. And I I referred to it, um, which you're going to have to say how you pronounce it, because we literally argued about this in the lobby of the AMC. It's Downton Abbey with a werewolf. Um, The werewolf, and we'll, we'll kind of dig into, you know, how the werewolf functions in a sec, but it's literally kind of Downton Abbey, this kind of upper crusty, um, very, you know, British society. I think it's supposed to be kind of like late 1800s or, um, uh, yeah. 19th century France. France. Yeah. Yeah. So it's 1800s France. And And rural. um, It's a rural rural. story. It's not like a, yeah, it's not in the cities at all. Yeah, Yeah. So you're definitely getting, and it is a mix. You're getting village people. And then a lot of it centers around kind of this, the man who is for lack of a better way, I'll say kind of the mayor of the town and his family who definitely live a much kind of more opulent lifestyle. And so it is, is this kind of um, 19th century, well-to-do village, um, very lovely, very kind of beautifully kept gardens. And oh yeah, there's also a werewolf. Yeah, well, but I don't know if, uh, see, that that werewolf, I don't think it's a werewolf. I I don't want to ruin it for people either because that was the coolest thing about the movie is that, not that this will ruin it for you, but it's it's other. It's It's other. And and it's somewere between the werewolf and the thing. and and, And I won't even, and it does a few things biologically that are super interesting throughout the film. And there's one sequence in particular without ruining it, but like, 
you know, maybe the three quarter point, there's a sequence that you just have never seen in a period piece, period, because mm-hmm. it just looks so modern and weird and horrific and goopy, which, which makes the movie for me, that kind of stuff, you know? And it's, what I will say is I, I too kind of cringe to call this a werewolf because it isn't, it's doing something different. It starts off with, I think that it's like a gypsy curse is kind yeah, of the best a, it way is to a gypsy put it. Curse, yeah. um, where she is, is makes these cursed metal teeth and then bites somebody with them. And yeah, then so they're silver teeth, right? Like they yeah. melted down silver from coins I, I won't say where, where they come from because that's, that's kind a, of a cool twist. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, but 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 they, they are melted down to create these like uh, these kind of vicious looking that you'll see in the poster. Um, and there are really, I mean, I think like I felt like some of the best moments, unfortunately, are some of the best moments are dreams. Mm-hmm. And usually that bothers me maybe more in movies than it did this time. But I, there's some because they're nightmares with a purpose. Like they've been cursed with these nightmares. In this and the whole of, town is having yeah. them in unison. And I will say, my general rule in movies is. You get one dream sequence pull after that happens again, it's too much. Like you can't you can't fool me with dreams twice in a movie. Yeah, um, I give this one a little leeway because like Nightmare on Elm Street, it's a bit more tied into the narrative, but I agree with you overall. Usually that is that's very true because you, and this one does go back to the well <laughs> when those are your biggest jump scares and their dreams, it, it, it is a bit of cheat, but they're so atmospheric. The dreams in this are really eerie. They feel more like channel zero dreams. They don't and feel like period piece dreams. You know? I will say that what one of the things that I did like about this movie, and I will say I didn't consider this to be a perfect movie, which I'll get into in a sec. Elric definitely liked it more yeah, than I, really I did. I enjoyed it, but I had um, kind of logic issues. But one of the things that I did like is that as this, whatever it is, is spreading through the town, we'll just call it a curse. Um, there is this big kind of argument about whether it's plague because the bubonic plague is spreading at the same time, whether it's demonic possession, whether it is the gypsy curse, like there's all of it. And I kind of loved that. Um, it was just everything because of that. Like they brought in an exorcist and they were trying to exercise some of the people, but at the same time there was this, Oh, don't even bother. It's the curse. You can't, you can't exercise away the curse. No, it's the plague y'all. And so it was a really interesting kind of um, historical way of looking at all of it. My issues with this, this had some weird editing, I have to say. And it's weird that I even walk away from a movie and have issues with the editing. But I was surprised. This is one of the most, like when I turned to you, I remember thinking you were going to love it as much as they, and you were just like, yeah, but what about that scene that was out of order? And I was like, really? That's what you think? I, I just didn't. It reminds me of It Follows all over again. There were so many (laughs) scenes where I had logic issues, where I felt like people were teleporting, where I was like, she was just in the field. And then with Mm -hmm. no indication, she's now here and it's the next morning. Like it just, the editing, it made me feel like this movie was originally three hours long Mm -hmm. and somebody was like, get that thing down in 96 minutes. And so we were losing interconnectivity i felt like we were losing scene transitions like it didn't have any um and so there were really kind of moments where i was like wait what's happening and it was even in some of the action like i don't want to get into it because this is one of our big like scared goopy sequences but the way that we biologically set up that the monster behaves in the first two passes it didn't do in some of the other ones like this certain thing that it does was just completely cut out and i was like how did that even happen if it didn't do the thing that it does and that's when that's when we walked out. You're talking about that, and that's when I said, "This reminds me of It Follows." Where I walked out of It Follows, going, "Hey, I don't need all the rules. Why would they know all the rules?" And you're like, "But they need to have the rules." But you like, have to have the rules, and if you don't follow the own rules that you yourself have written, then you're being a bad film guy. No, they're not. It's not the filmmaker giving the rules. It's the pathologist in this case. He comes in and he sets some rules that could be like 
accurate or may not be accurate. Well, so yeah, yes. when when I really started kind of analyzing it more mentally when I got home, I realized that when I was arguing how they were kind of breaking or more of kind of just leaving out some of their own rules that like they would set up things like you have mm. to do this, this and this. And then at the end, they do none of that. They just cut to the fourth step. I realized that where it was falling for me was editing. It was just like somebody said, well, we don't need any of those by the time we get to this point. But you do because you wrote them. And so... I'll back off. It was, but it's a really good movie. It's a really cool, like original feeling for what it is. And like in a year where I, I mean, cause I'm definitely not period horror guy. Like mm-hmm. I would say I'm the opposite. I, I, I think usually like I always say to people, period pieces are films where you already know all the characters died a hundred years ago. So who gives a fuck? Like, you know, it's like, I, there's already tombstones for these humans. Um, but this one for some reason really got me. Probably it was the more modern stuff that crashes throughout it. But you know, we were talking when we walked down and we're like, this movie came out of nowhere. This guy, who is this guy who just got to make this film? And I looked him up and realized, oh, no, he didn't come out of nowhere. This is Sean Ellis. And, and so a um, couple things that he had a few films, but two that I knew. There's one that uh, that is not horror, but is kind of like interesting slacker sci-fi called Cashback, a British film which has a naked topless girl on the cover in a supermarket. It's kind of a famous image. You, as soon as you see this image, you'll go, oh, that movie, because it's like an art house British thing. It made a big splash when it came out. And then he made one, one of those movies to die for called the unbroken. That mm-hmm. was pretty solid. So, so he's a, he's a really good film stylist. Oh, um, I remember the, unbroken. with Lena Headley. Okay. Yeah. Lena Headley. It's a good movie. A it's like really cool one. Yeah. And so like, I, I, I was with you when we watched this, we both felt like this was like somebody's first film coming out of nowhere. But in fact, once I looked him up, I was like, okay, no, this is somebody who had actually made a number of very stylish, smaller films and obviously mm-hmm. got a big canvas for this one but um yeah highly recommend this one probably not in yeah. the theaters by the time you know it might be at the end of its run but i think it will this will be um you know one to a, a keeper you know yeah way. and i will say that even my tiny little quirks with like the congruency problems of how the scenes work um and and you know kind of missing moments it was still a really refreshing monster movie because yeah. it isn't what you think it's going to be and it is something completely different that you haven't seen before so um, I would still give this high reviews with yes. slight concern about the editing, but it's still very two slight. thumbs up. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, what, else? what did you say? I saw a few new, newer things. Not, not those are my two high points. Well, let me go into, you know what? I'm going to start with my new, new one. So I'm going to talk about one that is made by two of our listeners and it's currently at South by, and cool. I had a blast with this one. This is Deadstream. Um, Deadstream currently playing at South by, um, this one, I had been contacted by the publicist and they offered me a screening link and I was like, oh, hell yeah, this looks fun. Um, the setup of this is a, uh, this, I swear this setup would usually turn me off as soon as Mm -hmm. I read YouTuber, but there was something so charming about this movie, um, that it's this disgraced internet YouTuber. You don't exactly get the full details of what he did, but he does these like internet stunts. And you get the idea that whatever he did, he really embarrassed himself and he really pissed off a lot of people. And so in order to make an apology video, um, he apparently put up one apology and it was kind of disingenuine and you get the idea that he was forced to do it. And he's trying to do this kind of like co like, like trying to apologize even more. He is locking himself into this incredibly haunted house overnight. Hmm. And swears he's going to stay there the whole night, kind of, you know, to come to peace with his own personal demons. And when he gets there, of course, there's ghosts and he kind of opens up the doorway to him. And then that's it. And it's this guy 
with all these cameras alone in a haunted house with all of these demons. Um, this is straight up. It's like evil dead hmm. for YouTube. It is so fun and funny. The host who is also one of the directors um, is just like, you'll want to hate him. Like from frame one, I'm just like, I want to hate this guy, but there's just something so charismatic and charming and fun about him that you're with him that even though you know, you're like, he's a jackass YouTuber, um, you still end up kind of falling in love with just his, his charm and cheering for him the entire way through. The movie functions much like Evil Dead. First, that it's using the cameras really ingeniously um, because the whole house is wired for ghosts. And so you can see like when cameras are firing, they've got all this motion stuff. So they use the technology of these cameras really well within the movie. But even the way that the ghosts and the humor humor function, it's very Evil Dead-ish. there are some over the top moments I will say, like there's like a nose picking thing where I was like, I don't know if that's going too far or that. No, no, that's kind of like, I swear it would be an evil dead or army of darkness more. So it, it totally works. Um, but yeah, it was just a really fun movie. You could see that it was kind of, you know, a smaller budget that they spent most of their money on the effects. Cause it is one guy, like two or three ghosts, um, one location, and then just these really cool ghost effects. Like there are some really cool special effects in this super over the top, super goopy. Um, but with that, you know, it was all in the writing and all in the script and all in kind of the ingenious way that they're using the film devices being set up with the YouTube shows. Additionally, you're constantly seeing all of the the comments, not constantly, but pretty regularly throughout the movie. You'll see him pick up and actually look at the YouTube feed as you're seeing all the comments come in. And it definitely adds uh, an interesting side to it as well. Um, Director writers are Joseph and Vanessa Winter, who were also the directors. Cool. And so that the South by it was its premiere. Yeah, South by was its premiere, I believe, last weekend. It is just total like evil dead-ish splat stick for YouTube. Um, I had an absolute blast with this one. Highly recommended. I would be surprised if this isn't a hit with horror fans. Cool. Um, I saw a pretty dense one that was pretty interesting. A brand new one that premiered. I think it came out in theaters this week, probably online too. Uh, Ultrasound, directed by Rob Schroeder. Um, and this is based on a couple volumes of a graphic novel that are written and illustrated by one guy. So they're like epically long, apparently, like as books um, and took a long time to get made. Um, but this is a, a pretty interesting film. It opens with uh, Pete from Mad Men, who I can't remember the actor's name, but Pete from Mad Men. He's driving on a rainy night. His car breaks down. He finds a house, he goes into the house. This, you know, like guy, probably like late 50s, comes to the door and he's got a much younger wife who's probably like late 20s. And, you know, they get continued, you know, says you can stay here the night because all the shops are closed. They drink a bottle of vodka. And then he says, well, why don't I take the couch and you can sleep in the bed with my wife? <laughs> the guy's like, wow, no, that's not a very good idea. And he's like, no, no, trust me. She'll, she's really lonely. And this is, this is, that makes total sense. Uh, so he goes and eventually is somehow convinced that, okay but it's all shot in a way where you know it's meant to be super awkward and odd and it's like you can tell he's kind of out of it from the alcohol and you don't know exactly what happens between them that night but there's flashes that would indicate there was a there's an encounter between him and this uh, young wife and wow. it's basically then the guy shows up to his house 
you know, a week later and say, you know, or a few weeks later and says, Hey, I've got a videotape to show you. And he's like, uh, why are you at my house? How'd you find out where I live? You know, uh, after he had broken down at this guy's house and, uh, he puts on the video and the video is his wife in the shower and she's got a small bump. Uh, and he's like, yeah, you know, you don't have to do anything. No big deal. Like, I'm just wanted you to know, like, it'd be cool if you could talk to her. It's like super weird. Like he's playing it like comedy, that guy, but everything else is played straight. I was Lynchian. And so of course that's your setup, but then let, I, I can't really even go into it too much except to tell you that very soon you start to realize both people in question are also in a clinic where they're doing weird experiments on them. Is she really pregnant or are they in some sort of weird therapy center and it gets it like the word the term mind bender is thrown around a lot but i truly think if i really analyzed all the films i've seen in my life i've probably only seen one or two that i would call legitimate like your mind is actually having bend around corners like i think jacob's ladder is one of the ultimate true mind benders first time you see that movie your mind has to like get over certain ideas to kind of keep following this is this is in the category it's not as successful as that and it's an indie Mm -hmm. so it's doing it's big swings on an indie budget and if you're not into weird crazy sci-fi you know in that way then skip it but i was continually intrigued and continually had i truly not one beat to the next would have been able to tell you what was about to happen which is very rare because it was that kind of dense mind bender um and it's got you know moments of horror but it, it was just i thought it was really interesting and it actually has a has, had a higher than i thought would be rotten tomato score actually it was like pretty high it was like 80 percent or something um it just shows that it, it's it's one of those movies that i i can't believe they really made it indie because you could probably imagine someone making a show of it maybe like uh, more chapters maybe it's a little rushed at times but mm-hmm. definitely for people who like those kind of movies i wanted to put it on people's uh radar it also has a couple other people it has a uh, tunde debempe from tv on the radio he plays the doctor in it um and it's just it just is continually surprising and and pretty odd uh odd film but um yeah i kind of dug it ultrasound this was at tribeca uh, yeah, it was here okay i remember yeah. seeing this online and it screened in fantasia as well yeah i remember hearing about this yeah one. i think it just so i think it was in theaters i saw the premiere of it um last week and so it must have hit amazon and places i imagine now on on demand Ooh, this sounds fun weird it's just interesting like it's it, like a never i was never bored i was continually like oh okay you know it's pretty weird Okay, let's go to Thailand for a sec. Why not? Um, so a couple, it was probably like a month or two ago, I watched this really cool Thai film called The Tagalong, which I could not recommend enough. It was just this super tight Thai ghost story that I absolutely loved with just this amazing protagonist and his grandma um, and, and just had a blast with it. And while I was reviewing it on this show, I said, oh, and there's a part three called Devilfish that looks to be about... A devil fish. And I was like, I got to find that. But at the time, it was not available in the US. Um, and I couldn't find a copy of it to, to get here. And so I didn't see it. But then just a couple of weeks ago, Tagalong 3, The Devil Fish, became available in US region. And so I immediately blind bought that and was like, oh, I'm watching it. Um, you know what? This needs a lot more uh, fish and a lot less devil. Um, so the, wait, is this one just called Devil Fish? Devil Fish. I've and seen it, that movie. If it's the same one I'm thinking of, 
No, there's a couple devil fish. Oh, okay. So here's okay. what I discovered, which I actually was like, that's really cool. There is this very, very well-known, just kind of everybody knows it, Thai urban legend, supposedly about this group of fishermen who are fishing one day. They pull this fish out of the water and they start eating it. And while they are eating it, it literally grows a human face in its side. Uh. And the face says, um, is the fish meat tasty? And then they all become cursed from eating it. So it's like this cursed fish. That is the cold open of this movie, huh. which is crazy because they're all eating the fish meat. And then they hear that thing, like say it on the wind and the fish literally has a face in its side. Really cool. Like eyeballs pop out of its scales. It's an awesome cold open. And then they immediately start like banging their head against rocks and like going full, like event horizon on each other. Huh. Like it's a crazy cold open. Um, and then it shifts to a temple priest um, named Tiger Temple, who is apparently in part two of Tag Along, but I have to confess, I skipped that one just to get to the devil fish. And then our story shifts to a boy and his mother as they're kind of being harassed by um, a vengeful spirit um, brought on by the fish that somehow it gets towards this boy and it's attacking the boy. The priest tries to tap trap the fish in a different fish. He f- kills the fish. Uh, he gives it to somebody else to take the fish away. But on the way, the fish gives birth to another fish, which they put in an aquarium. And then it starts growing. And then it becomes the new devil fish. Honestly, the fish past that point, this all happens in like the first 15 minutes, which sounds very, um, you know, like fish, fish transference, which was basically what it was. Um, as soon as that fish gets captured by the teen and put into the aquarium, it all just becomes kind of a demonic possession exorcism movie. Um, And then it just becomes like the demon moving from this person to this person. Oh, it's in the teen girl. Now it's in the boy. Now it's in the priest. And um, just kind of moving all over the place. It had some cool sequences. This was nowhere as cool as the original tag along and definitely needed more fish. Um, if I see a movie called devil fish, I want a devil fish, not a fish that is just kind of possessing people around it. Um, but that said really dope cold open in this movie. I, yeah, I like that image of the fish face. I mean, yeah, look, uh, exorcism, um, possession and priest movies, very hard to win me over at this point. Uh, which segues, even though I don't have a fish, it segues very well into the exorcism of God, which is a brand new film, but that's a hell of a title. It is. And it, and it's by Alejandro Hidalgo, who I believe we both saw this. He made a really interesting um, film. I think it was from Mexico called The House at the End of Time. Yes. Remember that? Um, and I think that was not, I want to say it was. Peruvian or something. Peruvian. I think. Three I think, seconds, I'll look it up. Yeah, I, I think, don't think it was Mexico. No, I think you're South right. American. I, it was definitely South American. It was American. South American. I think he's from there, but he has gone on to make films in Mexico too. So this one's in Mexico. This is the follow-up. Um, a House at the End of Time is Venezuelan. Okay, Venezuela. Interesting. Yeah. Um, but this one, I'm pretty sure, is from Mexico. Um, this is a follow-up and pretty feels like quite a big movie. It was just in theaters. Uh, uh, weirdly enough, and you'll laugh at this, um, the priest in this movie, and this is why it came to my attention to watch this movie, the priest is played by the lead from Tender, my short film from a few years ago, Will Oh, Beinberg. my gosh. <laughs> and what's funny about that, he's also the bad guy, a bad husband in uh, It Chapter 2, uh, married to Chastain at the start of that thing. He's really nasty. But what's funny is, in real life, he is like, um, to me, like, charming womanizer surfer dude, not priest. <laughs> so when I see him as a priest, I was like, what? So I had to watch it. Um 
look, I, you know, the only the bummer is I just, I find it so hard to get into priest movies at this point. They would have mm-hmm. to like reinvent the wheel, but this did something bonkers that I have to at least give the cold open of this thing because it's kind of nutty. So imagine it's, it's to the point where we thought it was a satire at the start because the beats were like, there's a shot of him outside, you know, a house with the light shining on him, like exactly beat for beat the exorcist. And I, uh-huh. maybe that was the point, but he's a lot younger. It's like f- 15 years earlier is a younger priest. In other words, he's clean shaven. Uh, he, he goes into this house, this uh, woman, you know, not much younger than him uh, is possessed. And she's like full on like devil eyes and looks crazy. He does. He decides to do perform the right by himself because there's not another priest who can get there in time. And this is where it gets kind of kind of a bonkers idea. Probably why the title is called The Exorcism of God. He uh, he says, you know, he tries to he, he does his thing, and the devil leaves her for a second. Of course, she's trying to like tempt him all the way through and trying to turn him on and stuff, and he's resisting. And then the the spirit leaves her, and suddenly he looks up and his eyes go dark, and he's possessed. So he so you're watching a movie where the the priest came over to exercise the demon from the girl the demon jumps into the man of god and the man of god has sex with the person he just which that alone is enough to make me go okay i that's pretty bonkers like so now the god and the devil together conjoined are having sex with this girl so that part you don't see it cuts out before you see that but then it cuts to 15 years later and other people are starting to get possessed and he's like, you know, he's totally normal again. He's nice. He doesn't have any clear memory of what happened that night. And then it kind of, it takes a while before it gets going again. And then there's quite a few bonkers scenes towards the end of this. Again, if it wasn't for the fact that this is a subgenre that I have just, you know, I think, I think it would probably help if you're Catholic, you know, the subgenre, mm-hmm. because you can still, you know, you can still relate to some of the ideas for me. It's just the, that part's, uh, it was almost impossible to win me back, but it was, you know, obviously it was fun for me to see Will in this role, but it was, it has a couple moments towards the end where you're like, okay, there's some crazy, there's one thing in particular that gets possessed, which is kind of like a statue that's very creepy towards the end. But it's a pretty big film. It's just relying on too many jump scares and things like that. You know, it's a little, I'd say beyond that opening, it's it's a little, um, you know, be, you kind of know where it's going to be headed mm-hmm. for the most part. But it is, I mean, that, I've never seen that. It's like, what if, what if you know, Max von Sydow went around to Regan and then he's like trying to inseminate Regan. It's like, that's, pretty that's, crazy yeah that's kind of intense yeah um, she wasn't like a little girl though in this case like that's okay, good, the only good. plus thing is she was like oh I, she was probably like a woman like, she was younger than him maybe but it's not like it would be a lot worse if it had been the the regan and the exorcist obviously um but you know it's interesting and and it kind of has there's a payoff to why obviously there's payoff to why that happened at the start towards the end of the movie um but yeah weird weird movie that i probably would not have uh, pushed play on had i not recognized the person so that one's called the exorcism of god wow i don't know if that was a good review or a bad review uh it yeah it, it, it's review. more like there's some bonkers stuff but yes i don't think i could be quite won over by it uh even though i want to be supportive well this one um not exactly won over by. I'll say this one is a 1980s completionist film. So I watched Mortuary from uh-huh. 1983. This one has been sitting on my shelf for a really long time. And I decided one night, I'm just going to go ahead and pop this in because I was in the mood for bonkers 80. Um, this was 80s. I don't, I can't call it bonkers. 
1983, um, it cold opens with this guy sitting by this beautiful pool in what we're, I think, supposed to think like is Malibu or Long Beach. And all of a sudden somebody comes in with a baseball bat and like beats the shit out of him and he falls into the pool. And then the next thing you see is the coroner report being like accidental drowning. And you're like, but I just saw the baseball bat, man. Um, But what if so it then falls to the daughter his teen daughter who is absolutely ravishing and has boyfriends and fun and popular and really wealthy and her mom's hot and everything standard, like 1980s Beverly Hills teen. And um, she is convinced that her dad's death was not accidental, but nobody will listen to her. Additionally, she keeps seeing weird shit. And that kind of becomes the core part of the movie of mom. There was somebody outside the window in a black coat cloak. No, there wasn't, dear. No, no, there really was. No, there wasn't, dear. Mom, I just saw something else over here in this area of the house. And this creepy thing happened. No, you didn't see anything. Do we need to call your doctor again? And that's the whole setup of the movie is her seeing shit, her seeing weird things. And then her friends disappearing. And mom, something happened to Michael. I'm sure he's fine, darling. And that becomes the setup of the movie. It does have Bill Paxton in it which is kind of fun. He plays the mortuary owner's son and he's super creepy. Um, So that part's fun. I did not see the end coming just because it's kind of so left field compared to where the movie is driving. It's like if we are driving the horror car over here in this direction and nope, all of a sudden it's like an aliens film. It's not an aliens film, but it's very much kind of that weird um, moment at the damn end you now I like, feel like I'm gonna have to rewatch it I only watched it like a year ago <laughs> and I've already forgotten the ending god damn it I definitely it did not go where I was guessing it was gonna go like I, I'll say most of the film you're kind of like phantasmy vibes because it's some mortuary and bodies are disappearing and weird things happening and people around the town dying and it being ruled accidental. Um, it is definitely set and filmed in either like Malibu or Long Beach or possibly both. All the locations are this very upper crusty beach town, um, very much California with palm trees and everything. And then it's basically the sheriff from Dukes of Hazard shows up. So every single time, like one of the teens is like, sheriff, there's something out there. Well, you just get out alone now because there ain't nothing out there, youngin. And, and so it's this weird Southern sheriff motif mixed yeah, into like in California. Beach. Yeah, I always think that's really bizarre. Yeah. yeah. Um, but that said, it's all it. The whole movie is just set up of teens seeing shit and no one listening to them until this bonkers fucking thing happens in the last 10 minutes of the movie. Um, all great say, cover. Great cover. Yeah, great cover. And I will say that I this is definitely I'll call cult. Um, you know, I went in not knowing what to expect. It did have a cool 1980s roller skating scene. So hey. it had that going for it. Yeah. Um, so yeah, cool 1980s roller skating scene. Kind of a snooze, cool twist ending, cool roller skating. Bill Thanks. Paxton. Mortuary. Yeah. Bill Do Paxton. this, Butcher Baker, Nightmare Maker, and his movie Fragile and You're Home Free. Yeah, um, you can just start with Fred. Actually, Butcher Baker. I Butcher Baker's the greatest. I won't disparage He's that got one. a small role in that one. Uh, my last of my new ones is a new one on Shudder that hit there a couple days ago back um, that I really wanted to like this movie, but it, it kind of uh, it kind of annoyed me. Um, but it, but it's got moments, and I, and I could see it. If it hits with the right people, I could see them really liking it. It's called The Seed, and it starts out as uh, three girls a weekend away kind of into the Mojave Desert, and I just... I. 
I really hated them. Um, I think I, you're supposed to. No, I know. I know I you are. Supposed this, to, yeah. I started this because I okay. saw the trailer and I was like, oh my God, these characters look awful. Yeah. No, and then and I they started are, it and it was like 1130 on a school night. I say that like I'm 10. Yeah. Um, no, I just have to be up for a 7 a.m. or a 8 a.m. class. And it was like 1130 on a school night. And I was like, I'm going to have to come back to this one because I'm going to fall asleep. But that was my takeaway from the first 20 minutes is I hate all these characters. Yeah. I think I'm supposed to. No, you are meant to. But the, but that that that's we can always say that, right? Like, look, what I want to say about X, right? And we'll say it a little bit in the interview with Ty in a sec. But is Here's a, here's a world where we could hate all these characters, and I liked all the characters. We loved them. No, Good were- guys, bad guys. Every character there has a likable quality to everyone that makes you want to keep watching. And in this. There was like, you know, there's, I think they're pretty good. They're all doing a pretty good job, but I just found it hard to even watch them. And it's very modern. It's very much about like, oh, my followers and all that kind of stuff. Anyway, these three girls are in the middle of nowhere, this beautiful house uh, in the Mojave Desert. It's one of their parents. Um, they don't all kind of fit together. Like two of them are friends and one, the really pretty, you know, hot girl is kind of like the wedge between them. And they are going to be out there to watch a um, comet shower or something. They go outside that night and watch it, but it looks a lot more debris falling than would be expected. And then something falls into the pool and then that something grows into this weird like dog puppet creature. And it it's one of those things where sometimes like in the 80s and sometimes I feel bad when I don't like these things now because in the 80s, I would have loved this as this is Hendon Lauder doing it. And it's a puppet and it's weird. And it's got all these like goopy parts. And there's even a couple possessionist scenes in this like like it. There's something sometimes when it's done now, though, where it doesn't all hold together for me, the fabric of what I'm watching. Um, and anyway, this, so they find this thing. It smells terribly. One of them decides to eventually let it come inside the house. It has these kind of almost telekinetic powers, is able to control the girls, and then create, and then chick in the last act is off the rails. The whole last act of this movie is pretty crazy. I just couldn't, you know, I just never could get into it. I was like, I, I watched it. I thought it was interesting. I could see it being someone's favorite of the year and somebody else hating it. I, I don't think it's going to be in between. I think people are going to have strong reactions to this one, which is you know, cool. You know, it's like, that's what we should be getting on something like Shutter. You know, it should be uh, saying, but it has great, you know, great poster, the girl with the sunglasses and like the blood streaks coming from her eyes. Um, so, I mean, you can, but yeah, the weird dog puppet thing, I'm, I'm still wrapping my head around, around uh, what it was. It's some sort of extraterrestrial story anyway. Uh, but yeah, no, it's on Shutter, So it's an easy watch and I'm sure it's under 90 minutes so you know don't look don't let my experience put you off and so we were very interested in horror movies about movie making but the caveat i threw down pretty quick is let's try to el- mostly eliminate found footage films because uh-huh. obviously there's a million movies where somebody's like let's keep filming F- forget that a- and largely documentary films just because it's a different aesthetic and it's and it leans more towards found footage a couple, one of these might stray a little bit into this but so we wanted to look at ones because as a tribute to ty's film which is really you know one thing ty's clearly trying to do is the filmmakers trying to make real movie and you know it's uh and then things get in the way of that so uh i think it's always an interesting setting um you know ty's one doesn't want to go into the meta and some of our examples are and some aren't. And I think that's kind of interesting. But why don't we kick it off one, with one that I know is dear to your heart? Well, um, I'm going to start by saying um, it's hard to get movies like this made. Mm. Like Hollywood in general does not like being self-reflexive. And so even things like Brand New Cherry Flavor, which is about Hollywood, um, which is one that we actually left off this list and we should put on there. 
Yeah, no, it's a great, um, it's a great one to bring yeah. up front. Yeah. Those are so hard to get made because um, the general rule is that Hollywood does not make films about Hollywood. Now, of course, they occasionally happen. Swimming with sharks. I mean, Mahon Drive. Them, yeah, we get them once in a while, way. but um, they are definitely like they are far. It's far easier to like tell a story about baseball than Hollywood is going to be kind of inclined to talk about itself, unless in a heavy historical sense. If you're making something that is about like. Desi and Lucy that's very reflexive possibly but anything that's about like contemporary filmmaking it's way intense and I would liken the reason for that to be the same way uh, classical Hollywood editing is invisible it's so we don't notice what we're watching we just watch yeah. it and we take in a story it's the same thing to avoid making a story about Hollywood otherwise it's basically about the sausage factory that makes the thing that you're watching and and that can be uncomfortable and usually they are critical uh, especially when they're dramas they tend to be almost always satirical or critical of mm-hmm. that industry, the industry. Um, so you you know these, the, but in a horror film, it can be as little as like a, a couple that aren't part of our actual list. But like sometimes it's just like a framing, like um, the opening of Pet Symmetry Two opens yeah. with the mom. She's acting in the film. She gets electrocuted and dies. Scream Two, uh, The Exorcist. People always forget that she is the mom is working on movies. The whole thing. She, she's uh-huh. acting every day, going off to act, and then cut. so so sometimes they're just like throwaway scenes and something, or not throwaway, but like a setup to something. And other times they are the fabric of the events that we're watching. And that's kind of probably more what we're looking at with our, uh, the handful of movies we were going to just bring up. And this isn't exhaustive, but these are all ones we really liked mm-hmm. that we thought we'd quickly go through. So let's start with the one we saw together that I know you love and I'm, I'm due for a rewatch. Oh my gosh. Yeah. I want to rewatch this very badly. And I will say that when I saw Ty's film, which is about a group of young people making um, pornography, like group yeah. auteurs making, they, they consider themselves auteurs. Like they're definitely trying to do it with some type of an art artistic vision, um, making pornography. This is the first one that came to mind, Knife Plus Heart, which is a slasher film, also a giallo, French film, um, but it is about uh, making gay porn. It is about um, a company run by a female and a female editor, but their main source of income is that they make male-driven gay porn. And it's phenomenal. I loved this movie so much. I remember both of us just walking out being like, it's, it was amazing. It was breathtaking. Um, you have uh, relationships developing outside of the porn between um, the woman who runs the company and her female editor have history. And then um, essentially somebody is kind of killing and picking off some of the performers in these movies. And she's trying to figure out how to function. Um, one of my favorite moments is when she's watching them on the screen. Like she goes to a theater and just starts watching some of her own work. And it's just such a cool moment. Yeah. And she um, starts to pull in some of that into one of the films, I believe. Like she starts <laughs> to pull in some of the elements and that's probably why it's, you know, it's, it's when it's what you do with it. If you're going to have a setup that, Oh, you're going to make your film within a film, like give us some reason for that. And I think she's trying to always, interjects something personal into all her movies it seems mm-hmm. as the director which i thought was cool yeah it's also just a very stylish um movie I, i'm excited to see what uh that director does next because yeah. um so, so that was a good that was a great lead off the, the one that came to mind first to me was um one that we've you know brought up every few years i feel and i start i mean i started when it first came out but that's mute witness which is a really tense thriller and and it has and i think it uses the film thing maybe better than any of them mm-hmm. for for an opening i think the opening is much stronger than the ending of this movie um but the opening is a there's a makeup artist who happens to be mute she's uh, American and her and the director's American, but they're making a film in Moscow, and it's a you know it's a it's a horror slasher film, 
that they're making. And then after hours, everyone leaves. She somehow gets stuck on the set and loses her key. She goes back for something and realizes, oh, a couple of the people uh, that look familiar from the crew, like the ca- who have been on like camera crew from Moscow have kind of come back in after hours and they're going to keep shooting a movie. And you realize they're shooting an after hour porn that they're not allowed to not meant to be doing that. That turns hard into a very brutal snuff film. And she is now the mute witness. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's all you need to know. And it's, and, and it really, it really delivers. I mean, those opening sequences are really brutal and, um, and it's fun because all the characters in the movie are, you know, the film director is a friend of hers, the sound, you know, the producer is a friend of hers. So they become characters in the film. So I think that's another one that uses the framework actually really well would be a good double, I think with X in some ways. Yeah. Thesis. I'm so glad to see this one on the list. I have not seen this since like early 2000s, like late 90s, early 2000s. This is one that I'm deeply due for a watch. Yeah, I almost rewatched it last night because I'm a little bit the same way. So Alejandro Amenabar is most famous probably in America for Open Your Eyes. He did Mm -hmm. um, both. He did the Spanish version that was turned into Vanilla Sky. And if you haven't seen the Spanish version is one of the best thrillers I've ever seen. Like it is a master. It's so freaking atmospheric and weird and uh, just a great, great thriller. And this was his debut. And so for people who like, I'm not going to put it on the list because we've talked about it a lot. I feel in the last year, urban legend two uh, has come up a lot, just naturally on our weird nineties things, final cut, but that is all set at film school. And that, and this is like the more grounded version of that. This is all set this in grad school. Yeah. Dead serious. It's about a film student who is doing her dissertation. I believe it's on violence. Yeah, it's on violence on screen um, and and then it and, opens up to like a snuff thing. Yeah, while she is doing research, she happens upon a snuff film and um watches it as part of her research and then while she's still doing the research, she realizes that not only is it a real snuff film, but the girl in the video used to go to school there. Yeah. And so she realizes that she stumbled onto something massive and, and then it just explodes from there. Yeah. And it has a lot of the class, like she's got a film class guy in her class who she, you know, does most of her scenes with. And he's like typical, just like us. <laughs> he's like a total film freak mm-hmm. nerd. And it's, 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 it's actually a really good film. It's a little long for the kind of movie it is. I think it's like one, 20 or something you know but it, it is i uh, i just did some digging around before this and it's actually the only place it's available it's on apple um really? yeah it's on apple tv if you have to pay for it but it's like that's the one place you can see a good hd copy right now so it, you know could be worth it for some people and like i said i think this is a this is less about being on set than it is about film school culture, film school you know, which i remember fun. i yeah. watched this while i was in film school i remember i yeah. rented this from mondo kim's in new york city while i was in film school. yeah late late 90s i'd yeah. say right like 90s i was I probably saw it maybe 2003 or four, okay. yeah, but yeah, yeah um, a couple of years late to the party on it. But yeah, it was, it was a, a good watch. Um, so next up is the one that everybody thinks about when they think about kind of what are meta films yeah. and it's Wes Craven's new nightmare. Um, this is truly like the movie about movie making where the studio is trying to come up with some, it's got new line in it and they're trying to come up with this new nightmare on Elm street concept. And it's got Nancy and Robert England and Wes Craven. And they're all playing themselves. And it's all about how um, Nancy is a uh, real Nancy is having all of these dreams where there is a Freddy Krueger in it, but it's not Robert England. It's like a really scary Freddy Krueger all while they're trying to come up with a concept for the new 
nightmare on Elm Street. She's having these terrifying dreams. And and it goes from there. This one, I remember when I first watched it, um, that it's it's not like any of the others. It feels completely different, but it's really good. And Freddie somehow, um, in a weird trench coat and hat, he's terrifying. He is yeah. like truly terrifying in it. Yeah, it's it's it really to me is the ultimate meta film. Along with obviously, we could lump in the, all the scream stuff that became mm-hmm. part of what West was doing. But this, you know, it's about filmmaking. But I, what I love is that they also have a new story. It's not just meta because then it goes to like we had to make the movies to contain him, and I really like that. That was like Wes Craven like in the movie. Wes Craven saying we I had to keep coming up with these movies just to contain this thing, and if we ran out, he would free up. And it, you know, it's just creepy. It's a very unsettling. Uh, concept and it gets better with age i think of all the sequels that's the one that probably has legs to be rediscovered every you know Mm -hmm. um, block of time but um i'll jump straight from that one to what i would consider the other most meta about film movie making on movie making and it's one that i think people if they've only seen it once should go back to i think it's a an utter stone cold classic and that shadow of the vampire mm-hmm. um, by the least likely director for that movie, E. Elias Mahirish who made begotten the leap between begotten and shadow of the vampire is so huge yes. in terms of like just you totally different types of movies, you know? Yeah. It's like, here's my weird little arty piece that I shot in my closet. Like, it's which just, is still amazing because it's disgusting and insane and visionary and weird, but wild and yeah. surreal. And I still don't know what I'm looking at half the time. Cause the footage is so processed and bizarre. Um, and then going to an actual like linear story that you and know comic. It's, it's very funny, weird, as well. but yeah, it is. It's so, comic. Yeah, so this one takes. For, if you don't know of this film, and I feel like now because it's two thousand, you know, it's like it's twenty two years ago. There's a lot of people like I view this as a film that what I saw just recently in my brain. Um, but again, no, and it's the first time we see Willem Dafoe playing Nosferatu, and we're going to get to see him play Nosferatu and uh, Robert Eggers Nosferatu very soon. Uh, it will be uh, the next incarnation. But um, this is taking up the what started, I guess, as a weird urban legend slash joke that uh, Max Schreck, who was a real actor, uh, Schreck, the last name actually means death in German. There was no real photos of him ever out of costume. And he when you watch Nosferatu, it's about 20 years before or 15 years before practical effects really became a staple of horror movies and stuff. And he looks like a freakish rodent you know vampire thing mm-hmm. and so there's a lot of people saying well what if they had just gotten an actual vampire to to be in the film so it takes the idea that the actual vampire of Nosferatu is a real vampire and that character is slowly knocking off different people from the crew uh, much to John Malkovich who plays the director uh, F.W. Murnau's chagrin and there's just I, I will never not laugh at like why'd you kill the cameraman when you could have killed the script girl like like there's things that will always stay with me because they're so goofy but it's also shot really beautifully and it feels of the time um, mm-hmm. and it has just it's what it's like a bit of a class on early film, filmmaking like it, it goes beat for beat roll for roll you get to know what everyone does on on a film and I, I think it's a it's a really fun film if people ever want to go back to revisit. It definitely is. And like you said, um, much like Singing in the Rain, yeah. it is kind of a good historical film to let you know how films of right, that particular then. era, yeah. 1920s in this case, yeah. um, were being made. Like, it's Especially directed how the directors used to look. talk. Yeah. Like the directors would talk over them, right? Like, okay, now you do this. And that's just, you know, it's a very interesting way to get what you want. Um, yeah. With nonsense sound. Anyway, so that's those two are our two metas. And then an all-time 
all of us favorite, right? Yeah. This is one cut of the dead, which you have not, if you have not seen yet, do yourself a favor and watch. Yeah. Um, you have to get through the first 20 minutes. The first 20 minutes, you have no idea what you're watching. You think it might be like the shittiest made zombie film ever with like weird moments. It's still in one take the entire time, but you're like, I don't know if this is good or not. Um, It's just weird and all in one take. And then the movie starts. Then the movie kind of reinvents itself and you're watching a movie about making the movie that you just saw. Um, When this came out, I said it's the noises off of horror film which like five theater nerds out there got. Um, so yeah, it's the noises also noises off of horror films. You get to watch what they made and then the whole world opens up and you get to watch what was actually happening behind the scenes while they made it. And, and you will end so by feeling fun. the best you've ever felt. Yes. Oh my God. This still, I've you shown know. this in so many of my horror classes and it still makes me tear up at the end yeah. every single time. It's just, yeah, I started on a plane the first time and I couldn't believe what I'd seen. It was right before I think it got here. Like I think I was traveling. I remember when we were doing the shows, somehow I just had found it on this plane and it, I, I couldn't believe how good it was because it does look like crap. And when you first start it, <laughs> You, you will want to turn it off. Um, a couple, like, maybe lesser known in different circles. Uh, one that I really like, and then there's one that I haven't seen. Uh, that, that I insisted. Yeah, so, so this one, I'll start with Special Effects by Larry Cohen, because I think it's one of the lesser discussed of his latter kind of uh, period. But if you're an Eric Bogosian fan, and you've already mentioned Uncut Gems, so who isn't an Eric Bogosian fan? He's the best, mm-hmm. Mr. Talk Radio. Uh, him and Zoe Lund. Uh, he is a, it's really interesting. He's like, you know, a filmmaker, uh, uh, who is like he's meant to be like kind of crazy and full of himself probably like wells he's probably the joke is pr- they're probably making fun of wells but he uh comes up with, with basically a murder he murders a beautiful young actress and then he has the goal to then f- write that as a story and make the film to kind of almost cover his basis because who would be crazy enough to make a movie about what they just did and then he casts her ex-husband as the guy who's going to take the fall and sets up this whole thing and it's got some scenes in it that are really good it's like less funny than some of larry's stuff it's a little more sinister and bogosian's really like bad news in this movie but there's a couple filmmaking moments there's a part where he's like standing on like hundreds of photos of um, all these, you know, actress headshots. And there's just little moments that like, I don't know, have always stuck with me. But if you're looking for one that's more in that like, you know, late, eight, very late 80s uh, to early 90s kind of thriller vibe, I think special effects is pretty good. Not not FX, which is a great movie too. D- different movie, special. Yeah, FX is good as well. Yeah, now that thriller, you mention yeah. it, yeah, that's a good thriller. That's more um, not about filmmaking as much as you, uh, you know, uh, effects makers, I guess. So I have two that I definitely wanted to put in. One isn't on this list, so I'm going to drop it super quick. Um, but the first one I wanted to make sure we had on the list was Terror Firmer because you can't really have yeah. a meta a discussion on meta filmmaking without having Terror Firmer. So it's based on Lloyd Kaufman book um make your own goddamn movie or hold on let me get the name um no this one is uh all i need to know about filmmaking i learned from toxic avenger i think you wrote make your own movie after this um but it's based on his book and essentially what they did is they said let's pretend we're making a trauma movie and then somebody starts killing off everybody involved in it Mm -hmm. so this maniac is is on the loose while the trauma movie is going on and everybody on the crew is trying to stop him and so with that it is it is such a beautiful mix of kind of the art of filmmaking which they call attention to throughout um mixed with trauma humor 
And they, it's not even just there. Like I always remember there's like one line, like I'm going to Jackson Pollock your face on the street. Like it's just this combination of like highbrow and lowbrow. It's what trauma does best. Um, and this is classic trauma cla- cast. It's Will Keenan. It's Trent Haga. Um, Debbie Rashawn's the female lead. Lloyd Kaufman is in it. It is just an absolute trip. It is still a pure trauma movie, but this is, it's just so fun. This was trauma at their finest. 99. That seems so 99. This, um, Terra Firmer and Tromeo and Juliet. These were the two that like definitely I got into right when I was coming out of, um, high school into college that just like cemented it for me. I loved both of these because both Tromeo and Juliet and Terra Firmer were just this sharp mix of highbrow with lowbrow culture all at the same time mixed in a humor, humorous package. Yeah, there's other ones I'm not going to go as deep into because they're less about being on set, but they use the director and mm-hmm. I, the cinema. I'd say one we've given a lot of love to the last couple of years, Arabato, which finally got released oh, yeah. about a director. It's about the obsession of filming being likened to kind of heroin. And then a, 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 definitely not a classic, but a about as a psychotronic as you get, uh, Lucio Fulci's A Cat in the Brain, which is <laughs> analyzing the process of director creativity with all these gory sequences from his film. It, it never, like, ha- yeah, the plot yeah, is for Forgettable, though. You know? It's like a Lucio Fulci clip show, but yeah. he's like self-analyzing. And he's dressed like Elmer Fudd the yes, whole time, which, which is, is what most people take away. Is he literally is dressed like Elmer Fudd. Um, I would be amiss if I did not mention The Devil of Christmas. Which oh, of course. is yes, brilliant, the episode, brilliant. one of, I think it's the third season or maybe yeah. second season Christmas episode of Inside Number Nine where you're watching what you think is the filming of the type of stuff that Elric and I love, those BBC Christmas stories that they used to make in the 1970s. You feel like you're watching the bonus feature of it because you're watching it, but you're watching it with a commentary track on of somebody talking over top of it, explaining why they chose particular shots, what type of film stock they were using, how they shot it, where the actress was at any given time, Um, you know, really just giving you all the intel on the filmmaking and how it was happening. And then in the third act, it takes a drastic, drastic left turn with honestly one of the best twists that I've never seen coming. Um, yeah, this is one of my favorite things you've ever recommended to me because because even though the show's great and I still have um, some seasons to catch up on, it, this you didn't need to see anything to watch this. And I just watched mm-hmm. it blind and it's it's phenomenal. So I, I almost rewatched it this Christmas because I'd already kind of forgotten parts of it. So yeah, I, I'm with you on that. And then the last thing I'll, I'll mention here is a newish one that, it's still the only thing I've watched in the last year that I'm still laughing about like months later. And that is called deer skin. And that is directed by the guy who made rubber Quentin Duplu. And he makes these really weird movies, but he made this one movie that is about this, just this guy. You don't really understand it. Who buys this deer skin jacket. And then he becomes like obsessed with the jacket and he's increasingly obsessed with it. And then he meets a girl and he thinks he looks really cool. So he hits on this younger girl. He's played by the great French actor who won the Oscar for the artist, that black and white silent movie back mm-hmm. that they did. Uh, and the performance is amazing, but what's interesting about it. And like I, what I wasn't expecting is halfway through, it becomes about filmmaking because she, he tells this girl, he's a director, even though he's, doesn't know anything about movies because she wants to be an editor. So then he starts filming all the murders he does. And she thinks he's making this like avant-garde art. And every time he plays her film, each one gets wilder and wilder and he gets more and more into filmmaking. And it, when it ended, I was like, this might be one of my favorite movies about movie making because it's, 
totally absurd, the humor. And it's not, is it horror or is it like dark comedy? I have no idea, but I have not stopped thinking about this movie, uh, in the last like year and a half. And I don't, you know, and I don't love that guy's th- films. Like I think rubber's got some really funny scenes. I like rubber. It. No, rubber, rubber has some really good stuff, but I've watched a couple others where I'm like, yeah, they're interesting, but this one I loved. And I, so I don't, you know, anyway, it just, it just kind of was a last minute addition where I realized, yeah, some people might really dig this in this com- in, in regards to what we're talking mm-hmm. about. Um, but you know, that gives pretty nice broad viewpoint of the kind of movies that have been made, all very different uses mm-hmm. of making movies. Um, we kind of stayed away from, like we said, there's obviously great things like rise and fall, Leslie Vernon and all, all sorts of great stuff, but that's documentary about the topic, you know? Yeah. And I think that there's also an entire subsector of movies that are reflexive about watching movies, things yes. like midnight movie or anguish. Um, final girls, final yeah, girls yeah. where you're watching a movie while something else is coming soon. The Taiwan, one that I talked about a couple of weeks ago. Actually, um, a good one on screen right now. Philippine. I, I got to remember where coming soon was from. Um, There's but yeah. one, one, in, one on demand right now that actually is really fun for people looking for that called Red Matinee or The Last Matinee, depending on mm-hmm. when you saw it. And it's literally, yeah, they go to a movie theater to watch a slasher and a slasher enters the thing and is offing these people. And it's it's a, like Argentinian, but it really, you know, fun. If you're, if you're into that, it's a, a fun setting. But that is what's cool about Ty's movie is it is not that. This yeah. film is very much about a group of people who want to strive to make their dream of making um, a porn film that will break through and give them all a different career. And then things go wrong. And so uh, we are very lucky to get to talk to him again. We want to say it right here. Uh, there are not, not so much that there's plot spoilers in this conversation. It's more spoilers about certain things that were really fun not knowing before watching the movie. And that's why we mm-hmm. would highly recommend watch the film and then come back to this part of the interview um, as we sit down with Ty West. Tonight's episode of Colors of the Dark is brought to you by Athletic Greens and their nutrition drink, AG1, a product that Elric and I have been taking every day. After months of being in quarantine, Elric and I both wanted to improve our health in the new year. So we decided to try Athletic Greens. It's a health supplement that actually tastes great and really boosts your energy. Plus, it's from New Zealand, which Elric loves. So what is AG1? Uh, With one delicious scoop of Athletic Greens, you're absorbing 75 high-quality vitamins, minerals, whole foods, source superfoods, probiotics, and adaptogens to help you start your day right. This special blend of ingredients supports your health, your nervous system, your immune system, your energy, all those things. I started taking mine daily right before my breakfast um, and before I started in with the coffee. So it became this thing that I was looking forward to as soon as I got up in the morning. It lets me know that I'm getting the nutrients I need. And after trying to choke down an assortment of homemade kale and quinoa smoothies I was making, I got to say the taste of this is great. It's got this wonderful lemon flavor. And it's lifestyle friendly, whether you are keto, vegan, dairy-free, paleo, or gluten-free. As you guys know, I have crazy food allergies, and it is free from all of the eight major allergens, which I was really impressed with. AG1, it's a small micro habit with big benefits, and it costs less than $3 a day, so way cheaper than the cold brew habit. Right now, it's time to reclaim your health and arm your immune system with convenient daily nutrition, especially heading into the flu and cold season. It's just one scoop in a cup of water every day. That's it. No need for a million different pills and supplements to look out for your health. I take it like 30 minutes before coffee, and it actually has given me a little boost of energy, which has been great. To make it easy, Athletic Greens is going to give you a free one-year supply of immune-supporting vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. All you have to do is visit athleticgreens.com backslash C-O-T-D. 
Again, that is athleticgreens.com backslash C-O-T-D to take ownership over your health and pick up the ultimate daily nutritional insurance. Today's Colors of the Dark is sponsored by BetterHelp Online Therapy. Relationships take work, especially the most important one you can have in your life, your relationship with yourself. A lot of us will drop anything to go help someone we care about. We'll go out of our way to treat other people well, but how often do we give ourselves the same treatment? So this month's BetterHelp Online Therapy wants to remind you that you make just as much as everyone else does. So this month, BetterHelp Online Therapy wants to remind you that you matter just as much as everyone else does. And therapy is a great way to make sure you show up for yourself. BetterHelp is online therapy that offers video, phone, and even live chat sessions with your therapist so you don't have to see anyone on camera if you don't want to. It's much more affordable than in-person therapy and you can be matched with a therapist in under 48 hours. Give it a try and see why over 2 million people have used BetterHelp Online Therapy. This podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp and Colors of the Dark listeners get 10% off their first month at betterhelp.com slash C-O-T-D. That's B-E-T-T-E-R-H-E-L-P dot com slash C-O-T-D. All right, so me and Becca were very lucky to get to see uh, the LA premiere last night of the new film X on 35 millimeter at the New Bev. An amazing uh, cinema to see a movie like that. Uh, the old dirty picture theater. It felt totally on point, and very pleased to get to speak to a guest we've had uh, in former variations of the show. Uh, one of my favorite horror directors of all, uh, Mr. Ty West. Welcome to the show. Yeah, happy to be here. Glad you got to see um, see it last night at the New Bev. What a great place to see it. Even the cartoon was on point. <laughs> oh, but yeah, it was just such a cool experience across the board. That was just the perfect location and audience to see this one with. Yeah, it was great. I'd never um, been around for one of my movies played there. So it was very cool to, um, to get to finally see it in action, see it up on the marquee and everything. Yeah. yeah, all the all the programming they do before for people who don't know when they play you know, thematically related like cartoons. Uh, also, some of the trailers. I, I love the Britney Snow trailer that they played, you know, just kind of get it sets the mood perfectly for this film, which yeah. is a love letter to movies. Elric and I were suddenly like, we need to rewatch Prom Night because I remember being rather disparaging of Prom Night when it first came out. And now I'm suddenly like, it almost looked really fun by the trailer. So I'm kind of like, I need to circle back there. I'd forgotten um, that Idris Elba was in it. That's for sure. <laughs> So, um, yeah. But tell us a little bit of kind of where this film came out of. It sounded from the talk back last night that this had been one that you'd been kind of spinning around in your head for a long time. A little bit. Yes and no. I, I had made seven horror movies in a row and I wanted to take a break because I didn't want to repeat myself. And um, in that break, I was trying to think if I were to make another one, uh, what it would be. And I never really made a slasher movie before. And so that's always kind of in the back of my mind, but nothing specific. I hadn't done that in the same way I made a movie about aliens or a werewolf or something like that either. But I was always just like, I don't know, maybe one day I'll have an idea for that. And I had just been thinking a lot about uh, what I liked about movies, what I felt was missing from movies, what I liked about horror movies. Um, and I felt like horror movies at the time that I was having these thoughts were kind of soft. And when I think about all the horror movies that were very like affecting on me, that was not the case. There was sort of like a, a little bit of a dangerous edge to, to them or even just the you weren't even allowed to go see them. You know, it was like now everything is made by giant corporations and marketed in such that the hope is that everybody goes to see them. But growing up, it was like, you know, you had to go out of your way to the sort of like near do well section of the video store to even find. Them. Um, and so I was thinking about that and I was thinking about like, 
how much I have a reverence for the craft of cinema and how much I see there's still movies that are great and there's still plenty of movies that, that cinema is on display, but there are, there seems to be a lack of cultural reverence for cinema compared to how there used to be. And maybe that's because movies have been around longer. Maybe that's because we're so inundated with moving pictures and everyone has a camera on their phone that it's just not as special that such a thing exists. Um, and so all that is to say, I wanted to make a movie about filmmaking, but I didn't want to make a movie about people making a studio movie and how, because I, I don't know enough about that, nor am I that interested in that. And I also didn't want to make a movie about people making a horror movie because that's just like kind of too meta for my taste. Mm-hmm. But then I was thinking that in the 1970s, you know, when you made an adult movie, um, I think porn and horror have a sort of symbiotic relationship that they were these outsider genres that you could make independently and go straight to an audience. Um, in the seventies in particular, when you made a, a porn movie, you took the rest of the movie. So it was still a movie, like a feature length movie to play in the interestingly sex and violence kind of genre and give them a, like an entry point through filmmaking. Yeah. It seemed like also in the seventies, a lot of the, our favorite film directors cut their teeth on pornography from Wes Craven onwards under maybe aliases or they lustig. Yeah. Or key position, key roles. So it's obviously, it was kind of like Corman school. It was a place for people to actually learn the craft before and and both being equally exploitive in their own ways, the horror genre at that time and the adult industry. Right. Yeah. I mean, I think in the case of X, like RJ, his goal is not to necessarily make adult films for, for his whole career, but it's the only opportunity that he has. And, you know, there may be a ceiling to how good the farmer's daughter movie he's making can be, but he is aiming for that ceiling. And he is someone who's like ambitious and he is someone who's seen Godard films and is someone who like, you know, has a vision for the movie, even though this movie is, let's say like um, lowbrow in the sort of mainstream taste of things. Yeah. And I love that it did kind of have that mix to it, that you were definitely bringing in what I can, I think one of the huge reasons that Elric and I love Grindhouse so much that it was this kind of, you know, considered to be a trashy cinema topic wise, but that it was mixing in these highbrow artistic concepts. Um, And I really felt that coming through in the filmmaking as well, kind of I'd love to talk a little bit about kind of your visual approach to the film because you did so many kind of bold visual things with it from kind of how the stock looked to your edits, to your wipes, to chickens and things like that. How did you kind of visually approach it? Yeah, I mean, that was just a big drive. I mean, craft was a big part of the reason for me having the desire to go make another horror movie. So I just wanted it to feel really rich, like in the sort of traditional craft of cinema kind of way. So I wanted to invite the audience by watching a story about people making movies to think about what it's like making movies so that they would hopefully be a little bit um, fine tuned to be appreciative and notice the things that like the movie I was making was doing. And so it just is meant to be just a really rich cinematic experience. How did you go about um, kind of delineating between differentiating between the film within a film and the and the movie style? Like, did you have you obviously had set rules for yourself between the two films, but what were they? I don't know that there were really any rules per se. Um, I mean, it was scripted pretty specifically. So I more or less shot as I was like, I can kind of see the movie in my head as I'm, as I'm setting out to make it. And I'm hoping that I'm correct in that. Um, But it is, you know, when you're editing the movie, there's a certain amount of time. Do we stay in the porn movie for this? Or do we stay in the making of the porn movie for this? And those are like, 
um, pretty like loaded questions when you're in the edit room because they do make a big difference. But um, it was very scripted, like all the intercutting was scripted very specifically as it is in the movie. So that helps, you know, making those decisions ahead of time. And I like the casting of Owen there. We give a lot of love to Super Dark Times on this podcast, mm-hmm. a film we both really dug. And so it was really cool to see him get this role. I guess I, in a way, but asking you about the rules was kind of like, is he a different director than Ty? So Ty West is directing the movie, but is Owen directing the porn film or are you really, you know, still completely in control? I know you directed it, but um, was there any way to differentiate that like with through through Owen's viewpoint, I guess? I don't know. I mean, part of the benefit of having Owen is that he's a filmmaker himself. So, you know, he, it was not foreign to him to be picking up a camera and framing shots and to be making a movie. And it was not foreign to him to know what it's like to the challenge of getting the things you want out of things, which was very important to me. So it felt authentic. Um, but I think mostly like the character of RJ was written pretty specifically. And I think Owen, just for the things I just mentioned, he just got that. And so yeah. he was like, from his very first audition, I was like, Oh, this is exactly the person I have in my head. So it was, um, I mean, we're just lucky that, you know, he auditioned. I was so impressed last night when you said that this was a pandemic film, because we're seeing a lot of pandemic films right now. And for the most part, it's like three people, one room. Um, And this did not feel that. Tell us a little bit about kind of getting it off off the ground during the pandemic and your travels to New Zealand to do so. Yeah, so we were pretty much ready to make this movie, I want to say February of 2020, Mm -hmm. which is like, worst time to be about ready to make a movie. And so it was not looking good and um, everything was going on hold and the movie took place in the summer and it didn't look like we were going to have an opportunity to make the movie in the summer at the time. No one had any sense of how such a thing would even be done safely. So it was like, well, we're going to have to push the movie a year because we, you know, I don't want to shoot it in the winter and um, a 24 didn't want to wait a year. And so I sort of flippantly suggested we look at the other hemisphere and um, they said, okay. And so then we, you know, that kind of left Western Australia and New Zealand as options, but New Zealand at the time had zero COVID cases and New Zealand also had um, a, a good crew and New Zealand also had Weta Workshop. So I was like, well, let's poke around there and see if, if all those things would work out. And then I, it's unlikely we'll find a location that will work for us and the cars that we need because they drive on the other side of the road. But like, it's not going to hurt to look into it. I don't think this is going anywhere, but why not? And just miraculously in credit to Jacob Jaffe, the producer, like, one after another, things just kept falling into place. And so we found everything we needed there and we we packed everything up and we went and we did two weeks in quarantine. And when we got out of that on the other side, um, there was zero COVID cases. So we were able to make this movie safely with no, like we were made to make it in the traditional sense, in the sense that like there were no real protocols that, that were specific to COVID. We just made the movie normally. And wow. um, that's not social distanced in any capacity. That was like essential. Did you have to still use zones and the whole stuff that you're having to do with sets now, or were you guys able to get around that because it was a zero COVID cases environment? I mean, we were like a little bit of it, but mostly we're around it. I mean, we, we did certain things and, you know, hair and makeup, I believe we're wearing masks and things like that, but mm-hmm. it was, I mean, they were at zero. So it was, I mean, it was surreal to walk out of quarantine into an airport in we're talking like peak COVID time and have it not be there. And, you know, from we got picked up at the airport and went to lunch and it was like, whoa. So um, we had come from just like the height of it into literally like it never existed. Oh my gosh. That's surreal. Uh, what part of New Zealand, because I was trying to pick it, it looked like somewhere on the plains, like somewhere between Hawke's Bay or Wanganui or somewhere in there. I was curious. Good guess. Wanganui. 
Okay. Well, I'm going to, yeah, it, the, the only, only tells I had, I turned to Becca right, right after I said, the only way I could tell this was, was shot in New Zealand is when you go into the convenience store at the start, there is a New Zealand candy that I grew up hating called licorice all sorts. And you have it perfectly in the right side of frame. That was it. Wow. Otherwise. <laughs> you also, you leaned over and you were like, those are Kiwi cows. And I was like, I don't know. They look kind of like East coast dairy cows too. But yeah, it's, it's a hard, I would not have known that unless Elric leaned over no, and told no. me about the candy. Yeah, yeah. No, um, no, it was, it was great. It was great. And like, for me, it was really exciting to see a film that goes hard. Like I haven't seen, you know, New Zealand horror films haven't gone hard since uh, Brain Dead or Dead Alive mm-hmm. in terms of the kind of gore. So it was so fun to imagine some of these crew guys getting to work on a film this goopy. What was, uh, how, how did they react to your project? I mean, Weta was so welcoming and so excited. I mean, from, you know, Richard Taylor on down, everyone was just, they were excited to get to do something like this again. It had been a while. They were excited about very, 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 high level prosthetics for old age makeup. And they were very excited about, you know, heads flying off and eyeballs flying out and things like that. So it was, I guess in a way a return to their roots to some extent, but um, you know, I think everyone that worked on this movie was really just sort of charmed by what the movie was as far as its appreciation of filmmaking. So everybody just kind of wanted to like, you know, old school, make a movie. Well, I mean, I was super impressed by um, your casting of Martin Henderson. Cause I, I grew up, he was on a, a local, um, kind of like a soap opera growing up. He was like a few years older than me. And he was like the teen heartthrob uh, on Shortland street, which was it's still running, I think in New Zealand. So seeing him and he'd been in the you know, ring and he'd been in a few other American horror films, but this, this was to me like to cast a Kiwi as like basically a, a Texan. I think he really just crushed it. I was, I was really into that role. Yeah. He was incredible. And, 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 you know, I didn't, I don't know if I knew that he was from New Zealand when I first talked to, I mean, I guess I figured mm-hmm. out as it goes, but um, he just completely understood off the page who Wayne was. And, and that's an interesting role because a lot of people didn't. That was the kind of thing that people would read that role and they would think like greased back hair, toothpick mm-hmm. hanging out of the mouth, gold tooth, gold chains. And it was like, that's not at all what this character is. And it like that never occurred to Martin. Like he immediately understood Wayne, who Wayne was as like a businessman and whatnot. And it's like a, a really like ambitious entrepreneur who just hasn't hit his big break yet. And um, was like, you know, the football coach in a way to, to the group. And um, that was like really hard to find. And when Martin like walked in and did it, it was like, oh, my God, this is so obvious. So it was great. I mean, he's amazing. Yeah, it was a beautiful t- portrayal. As soon as you'd mentioned that last night in the talkback, I immediately pictured like we're making porn Texas style and, um, you know, the, the character from Wild at Heart. And then I was like, oh, <laughs> I can see how different you took this. And it's so uh, smart in that capacity that he does. He's got character. It's, it's dynamicness. And he's not just sleazy trying to get this done. Like there's a means to an end. And they're all likable. They're they're all coming from a world where you actually mm-hmm. want to see them see, succeed. They're they're dreamers to, on the on the level that they can be, and I and I think that was refreshing too because there is a CD like if I think of um you know Deep Throat and the guy who made that Damiana or whatever the guy's name was like you know the stories there are just so nasty that I, I wouldn't want to watch a film about that guy you know yeah. but you've created these characters you've given them enough time on screen for us to care before things take a turn. Yeah, I mean, I was I wanted to make I didn't want to make a movie where people's like lives went horribly wrong and they ended up doing something they didn't want to do and that's what this movie that was not interesting to me. I wanted to make. I didn't want to make a nihilistic kind of movie. And, and with this movie in particular, it sounds weird to describe it this way because, you know, there's a lot of murders and such in the movie. But I always thought of it just like like as an optimistic feeling movie. Like it was meant yeah. to be, we've been locked up in our houses for a couple of years. It's meant to be like a good time at the movies. Yeah. Um, 
Could you, before we get past Weta, could you talk a little bit about kind of working with Mia Goss' transformation there, specifically on the VFX, or sorry, the the um, special effects. Usually when you're doing any type of special effects on set, you know, kind of filming grinds to a halt. Um, it definitely moves at a different pace than other days. And she spent so much of the movie playing, honestly, like the oldest character in the movie, at, also while being the youngest. And so what was it like to get her in and out of that effect makeup? And, and before you answer, Ty, this is very important for you to understand. Me and Becca had no idea. No idea. Until the Q&A. We actually, it didn't even cross my mind it was her. I, I knew it was probably a younger actor, but I had zero clue. Mm-hmm. So, and obviously we'll put spoilers before we do this whole interview. So don't worry, we're not going to spoil it for anyone, but, but yeah. So just so you know, it, it was that effective. Yeah, that's good. I, I meant to ask after Eli said that I meant to be like, how many people in here didn't know? Um, yeah, no clue. So far is very few people come to the conclusion along the movie. Some people, because she is in the end credits as both catch it then, but most people it's when someone next to them goes, it was the same person. And there's like, no, it, no, it wasn't. What? Yeah. And this, it's a fun debate. And that was a, that was a big part of the allure because I always wanted them to be played by the same person because I always thought of them as different characters, but the same person. Mm-hmm. Uh, but to answer your, your effects question, um, it was a massive undertaking um, both for the production, but spe- specifically for Mia, because it was like six hours in the chair before the 10 hour day. Um, and what one upside to that is me embraced it so much that I think the fatigue that came with that, like really helped her in the, in the mannerisms and the, like the, the burden of the character, because six hours is a long time. That means getting up at two or three in the morning every day after shooting a full day prior to that. And then, six hours of makeup and then being on set for 10 hours to do all of these scenes with something that is like pulling on your skin. It's context that you can't really see through very well. I mean, it was very exhausting for her. And I think she just leaned into that, like, so that she could feel the weight of it all. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think that was really great for her and her process and just for the movie in general. So, um, I mean, I'm happy I didn't have to sit in the chair, (laughs) but it's, um, but I, but in a way, like it's, it was probably best for the movie that it be that cumbersome. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's a credit to how you shot it, too, because I just the way they're constantly being framed, it, it never crossed my mind. Usually when I'm watching, even when, you know, when Cronenberg did it, I'm very aware of, OK, now it's now I'm looking over that person's shoulder, a body double. And this it didn't cross my mind once. So I think it's good people going blind for this. Um, I, I wanted to ask you a little bit about the period in between, because I thought that was interesting hearing you talk last night. Um, you, you've done a lot of TV and, and some of it I've seen. I, mean, I remember seeing an episode of Scream TV that you did that was like, where I could notice the craft or yeah. But, but like, that's what it's been nine, about eight or nine years or so since Sacrament, you know, obviously d- you did the Western in between too. So for you, what was a couple parts of this, a technically, how did that change your directing? But also, B, is there any um, of the TV episodes that you did that you you would say to people, hey, you should just even seek that out as an individual episode if they're interested in your work? Or are you just trying to satisfy somebody else's vision when you're doing that? Uh, well, to work backwards, um, my favorite episode of television I've done is a show called Tales from the Loop. Okay. Mm-hmm. So good. I'm, I'm very proud of just my episode in the show in general. I think it's a great show. Mm-hmm. Um, That's on Amazon, right? I believe it is on. Yes. Um, But yeah, I mean, I spent however long I spent 10, 15 years or so making movies and no one really ever offered me anything. So like I just, every time you make a movie, you have to think of an idea. 
You have to write the idea. You have to go find money for the idea. It often falls apart. You got to find more money for the idea. It's probably less than you need. You have to somehow pull this thing off and then like get it to come out in a, in a landscape where you're competing with movies that have $30 million in marketing. And then if you're lucky and you do that and it works out okay, which it did in my case, you go back to zero to do it all over again. <laughs> and I have no complaints about that. But the comparison to TV is, can you be on a plane on Monday? Hmm. And it's like, sure. And so I was very happy to get the opportunity to go do something that otherwise has never been available to me. Um, and I do go into it um, trying to understand what that particular showrunner and what they want out of their show. And I try to be like, oh, okay, I know how to do that. And because I've made everything myself for so long, production is not particularly intimidating to me. So the idea of this fast paced TV schedule and no time and no money it all seemed like a bit cute to me. Like there was plenty of time and plenty of, I was like, they're saying that to me and there's like two techno cranes sitting in the parking lot. I was like, we have plenty of stuff. Um, but also I just got to work and like spend, have so many reps on set on so many different things where I didn't hire anybody. I didn't cast anybody. So you're forced to work with people that you don't know at all. And you're forced to adapt to that. And then you're, you learn from that and you just get better by the repetitions of doing it. And um, I just found that to be like, I was just really grateful for the opportunity. And anytime I could take the stress off of someone who wrote the show, who was like really wanted the movie to be a, the show to be a certain way. And they were struggling. If I could help them like that felt great. Cause like, I know what that's like. And I also got to see them um, in like the peak stress. And I was like, Oh wow. Like I'm you or like you're me in my other life. And that was a sort of profound thing to witness. Um, so I was just happy to do it. I, I like production. I like working with lots of people and um I was very, I hope to get to do more of it. So, but you know, I was feeling a little sharp from being on set so much. I had done a lot of shows and um, I had this idea for the movie. I was like, if there's ever a time to do it, it's now. Now talk a little bit about why a 24, like what was the collaboration that you guys were able to come up with and, and how did they help you kind of work to your vision? Well, we'd always sort of threatened to make a movie together, but never really done it. Um, mostly because I was not interested in, making another horror movie um, for a while. So, and I, they, I'm sure we could have made something that was not horror, but I think that there was an intrigue of us doing a horror movie together. Um, and I said, well, I was always like, well, if I ever have one, I'll bring it to you guys first. And um, I finally had one and I sent it to them. I said, look, this might be too crazy for you, but like, you know, take a look at it and see what you think. And they loved it. And I think that if they had said no, I don't know that I would have made the movie. I think I would have just been like, that was a totally fine exercise of writing a script. And I liked the script, but I'll just keep doing television and, and I'll be fine with that. Um, but because they, because I really wanted the movie to be something very specific and they got it and they were very supportive of that from the very beginning till now. And so um, they were like the perfect partners and collaborators on this. Yeah. I mean, they, they have been doing such great work too. Um, I'm wondering also about films on filmmaking, you know, obviously this can be seen as because they aren't making a horror film. And I think uh, me and Becca tend to prefer the films on filmmaking that aren't where they're not actually making a mm -hmm. documentary about a horror film. Right. Yep. The, the, like you said, they're too meta and it takes you out of what you're watching for a while. Were there any films about filmmaking that were influential on how you're kind of coming at this or that you just happened to like? I don't remember if there was anything that particular as far as like movies about movie making. I mean, there are some great ones, you know, Robert Altman has made some great ones. I mean, but it's, um, I can't remember if there was anything super specific, but it was just more the, like the ambition and the um, strange world that is what it's like to be making a movie. Um, I just think is really charming. I suppose, I mean, I guess I, I, 
Boogie Nights probably looms over that as well. Although weirdly, Boogie Nights was something that like, it is not lost on me, the obvious parallels, but it wasn't really a movie I was thinking about when I made it, but it is unavoidable in the same way Texas Chainsaw. Weirdly, I wasn't thinking about it that much when I made this, but they both loom over the movie. Neither, So I just was like, well, I might as well just be fine with that because no big deal. Um, but uh, They're professionals though in Boogie Nights, right? They're all pros by the time. <laughs> yeah, you know. like, yeah, it was more, I guess, about the industry and, and the porn. You know, I don't know. I always thought about X as just a sort of a way to invite the audience into having a quick like, crash course on what it's like to make movies so that they could hopefully appreciate the X movie as I would like them to. Mm-hmm. Which leaves me a little heartbroken for, uh, as we get to the end, because maybe no one's ever going to see that film. We're never going to get to see the we farmer's daughter. We never get daughters. to see the floral farmer's daughter. Or at least footage. unless there's a sequel of some kind. Um, which Agfa we- is going to find the footage in like <laughs> 10 years in an estate sale. It's fine. Something weird. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. We can't, we can briefly just mention it because again, like we, we're going to warn people to see the movie before they listen to this anyway. But um, obviously some people will be treated to seeing a tease of something that when we started last night, we had no idea until you brought it up. Uh, so, you know, you can keep it as minimal as you want, but it is, to me, it's pretty fascinating in terms of the process that there is another project related to this. Um, just to only tell us what you can about how, how that came together, because I think that was pretty interesting. Yeah. Well, as I was saying, when we went to New Zealand, we had to do two weeks in quarantine. And two weeks in a little room is a long time. And so while we were there, um, I was thinking we're going to this country where there's no COVID, where we can actually make a movie. Um, we are bringing a lot of things with us. We have an amazing crew that's on hiatus from Avatar. And we are building a lot of locations. Um, and I had an idea for um, a, another movie. And so I just wrote it while I was in the hotel. And Mia Agath um, and I were communicating on FaceTime and kind of collaborating on it. And I was like, hey, if I was able to pull this off somehow in these two weeks and get this going, and we, we were happy with this, would you stay in New Zealand a little bit longer? And she was game for it. And so it became this thing that we sort of somewhat secretly did where we wrote a script um, for a prequel called Pearl, mm-hmm. um, that took place in 1918, uh, about Pearl when she was young. And um, again, going back to the credit of A24, truly believing in this project and, and the collaboration being so great, they read the script and loved it. And um, they said, are you sure you could pull this off? And I was sort of very confidently sort of said, yeah, absolutely. Which in many ways, I think TV helped because I'm so used to working on multiple episodes and things like that. And so we shot um, the prequel back to back with X. Now it's wow. you said last night that it is a vastly different movie, and of course, this one's set in like 1918. You know, you were talking about having to find 1970s America in New Zealand. How did it go finding 1918? Should be easier. <laughs> From my childhood, it felt like like that. <laughs> You're not wrong. There is a, the, the weirdest thing ever is if you need a Model T with a left side drive. Sure enough, it'll be in New Zealand. We, you know, wow. it was a miracle. I mean, we we there's a lot of um, old car collectors. And we, we had, we had good luck with that. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's, it's a very, very different world, a very different style and whatever anyone you could possibly be thinking Pearl is, they are most likely mistaken. Mm. Wow. And, and so she's the only cast member that kind of replay. I mean, you, you don't have to say if, the, if it's a spoiler, but is it basically you were working with a different cast essentially? I think it's best to, we, we did this okay. miracle of keeping this movie a secret. Yeah, yeah. Let's, long. Let's. Um, and, like, and I can't believe we made it to South by before telling anybody. So, um, you know, I think that it's uh, the cat is out of the bag, but I'm trying to keep it as minimal as possible. 
Yeah, no, that's totally fine. Totally get it. Yeah. We're excited. Look, for, for me, it was just such a fun uh, time at the movies, too. Mm-hmm. I think I think that's that's going to be the exciting thing that it's getting a what for you would be a pretty damn wide release, I'd assume. Would yeah, this be it's the a widest couple, couple thousand theaters, right? It is the widest by leaps and bounds. So yeah. I'm uh, I'm very grateful and sort of humbled by the opportunity. And of all the movies, <laughs> the fact that it's the porn horror movie is sort of amusing in its own right. And um you know, to your own quote there, I really hope that people, you know, go see it this weekend and they just like, you know, they have a good time. You know, I, I think that it's like horror is a fun community experience. And I think this movie is a great one to see with the crowd. Last night was a good example of that um, because the movie is funny and the movie is scary and the movie is oddly, I think, moving at times. And it's really good to experience that with people who are going in with you know, no idea of what to expect. And I think what I said last night is that I hope that this movie is everything everybody goes to see it wants it to be, but at the same time, nothing of what they expect it to be. I, I got to jump back real quick. Cause I missed my opportunity to ask about alligators and um, Elric knows I, I love alligators in movies. Like anytime there's one, I'm just like, Oh hell yeah. Um, and I was like, it's more eaten alive than Texas chains. Yeah. It's got eaten alive vibes going on. Um, that was an actual like build, right? That was a physical alligator animatronic that you guys were using. Yeah. We had three different alligators. So we had like a, we had like a fiberglass shell one that was like half an alligator, but meaning like the top half, like as in its back and the top of its head. And that could float in the water at the appropriate level. And then we could have that on a sort of uh, winch that could be pulled through the water. And it had a tail that was mechanized that could wag as it went. So that was alligator one. I think they called it Christina alligator. Um, and then uh, we had another one that was like half the alligator, but the front half of the body that was um, puppeteered by the best way to think about it would be like giant hedge clippers <laughs> that you could open and close its mouth with. Um, and that one could sort of, you know, be moved and puppeteered by somebody and, and uh, maybe bite somebody in the movie. And that was, I think mostly made out of foam. Um, and then we had its own tail piece that could come off. And then we had another little head that we used for something else. Oh, oh my God. Um, well, we're we're excited for everyone to see. More, most importantly, to end with, is there any kiwi food that you particularly liked while you're down there? Because I'm always I, I, I miss pies, but you know I'm just curious. Oh, Tim Tams were good. Oh, Tim Tams are great. <laughs> yeah, okay. yeah. Okay, hot what? tip: wait, uh, wait. World Market in LA, you can get Tim uh, Tams. I know my okay. yeah. <laughs> I, I, my girlfriend is Australian, so she's okay. She's okay, down. she's down. She's down. What is the Tim Tam, y'all? Oh, I'll buy them for you, and you'll find wait, out. It's a you know what Tim Tam Slam is. Oh, what is the temp- when you hit it on your head? No, it's a oh. way you, you uh, this is what I learned. This is my, what I learned all the time. In. I guess you bite off the top of it and then you can drink milk through it. Oh, and I it, never like, even did that. Like disintegrates it into this highly recommended next time you're at world market to, I'm sure if you Google it, it's probably out there, but I would the recommend time. Yeah. That's why people uh, listen to these shows. <laughs> just to get Hot tips. Hot cooking uh, tips. Now, very exciting to ha- have you uh, back making such a uh, balls to the wall foam. Really enjoyed it. Had a blast. I hope everyone goes. Uh, and thanks for taking the time to talk to us. Oh, right on. Thanks for having me. Thank you guys so much for joining us tonight. It's been an absolute blast digging into horror movies about movies. Um, if you are jonesing for more weird horror, please head over to our Patreon show, Deep Cuts. Um, we have two shows that go up every month, and that's where we put all of our what the 
fuck shit that we don't know where we found it. We don't know what we're watching, but God bless that somebody got to make it. Um, we also put up our cheat sheets where every couple of weeks we post up a bunch of titles that you don't want to miss to theme them. I believe this month we're doing Irish horrors and um, yeah, those are absolutely a blast. So definitely head over to our Patreon show and, and you can support further there. But thank you so much for listening. Thank you, Fangoria, and thank you to our sponsors. And don't forget to vote in the rondos. The Colors of the Dark podcast is a Fangoria production. Producers and co-hosts are Rebecca McKendry and Elric Kane. Executive producers are Tara Ainsley and Abby Gould. Associate producer is Jessica Soth of Amir. Sonic branding by Michael Rodriguez. And, of course, our amazing sound engineer, Ernie Hurtado. Whether you're missing the key ingredient for grandma's lasagna recipe, need a new roll of paper towels, or in the mood for some late-night food, you can have it all delivered straight to your door with new Grubhub goods. From extras to essentials, Grubhub can now deliver all of your go-to convenience items all day long. Plus, it's fast and easy. Order Grubhub goods today on the app or online. Bring on spring with Lowe's and the Ego Power Load Trimmer with Line IQ technology. A trimmer so smart it loads the line with the push of a button and automatically maintains it without bumping. Get the power of gas without the noise, fuss, and fumes. Plus, the same battery powers over 50 Ego tools, including mowers, blowers, and more. Make your yard happy this spring. Shop in store or online at Lowe's.com. Lowe's, home to any budget, home to any possibility. U.S. only.